Tonight's reading is taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it's on page 1,234. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sean. Good evening, everybody. If I can add my own welcome to that that Adam gave. My name's Jonathan G. I'm the vicar here. And a particular welcome uh, to anyone here for the first time. And welcome back to your students after your short holiday of only about four months. I hope you managed to get some rest. I know it wasn't very long, but you are very welcome. Uh, You've come to us in the middle of us looking at these letters in Revelation, letters from the risen Jesus that came in a vision to the elderly Apostle John. We've got a map here just to put up to show you where uh, it comes. The Apostle John was on Patmos, the island. He was under exile, under the persecution of the Roman Empire. He had this extraordinary vision of the risen Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And the risen Jesus told him to write down what he got and send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there you've got a picture of modern-day Turkey, well, it's the same as ancient-day Turkey, uh, the, island, the Greek islands on the left near Kos and Rhodes, and some of you in Samos, or some of you will have been on holiday there. And we looked at the letter to Ephesus two weeks ago. We're saving the letter to Smyrna to next week, because that letter is addressed to a church facing extraordinary persecution. And next week, we'll be focusing on our mission partners from Open Doors who work with the persecuted church. And if any of you want to join us for lunch on that day, you'll see on the notice sheet it's there. Uh, Just drop an email to the office and you'll be welcome to join us and hear more. Uh, So we're looking at Pergamon today. That's the third one. These seven letters come, as it were, as the postman would deliver them. And the idea is that this is a letter to the whole church. We talk about sailing the seven seas as the whole seas. Uh, this sevenfold complete church is a message from the risen Jesus to his church, just as relevant to us today as it was then. Though obviously we've got to uh, look at the culture then and reinterpret it for today's culture. So let's speak. Let's pray that God would speak to us uh, a word to us here at St. Paul's here as students on campus, in your workplaces, and to us individually. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We praise you that you are a God who speaks, 
to your people and to your church. We thank you that you speak in all sorts of ways, but we praise you especially for the scriptures that we know are your word. We want to bow before you and submit to the scriptures tonight. Breathe your spirit down on us now, on me as I speak, on us as we listen. And may that same spirit who inspired these letters all those years ago breathe fresh life into them tonight, that we would hear your voice. And when we do, give us grace to go where you lead. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I also just give an apology by way of the last bit of introduction for any of you who came here looking forward to John Dunnett preaching. John Dunnett is the head of CPS. I thought I'd booked him for the whole day. He was here this morning. Sadly, he couldn't be here this evening. So that's really bad luck for you because you've got me again. And it's really bad luck for me because I had to prepare a sermon for tonight. Now, the world, I had an old sermon. I preached this sermon about 18 years ago. The world has changed enormously. So what I've done this afternoon is take my old sermon from 18 years ago and the good bits from John Dunnett this morning and mash them together. And we're praying. And so I pay tribute. If some of you were here this morning, you'll recognize one or two bits. Uh, I pay tribute to them. And for those of you who are listening online, uh, thank you, John Dunnett, for some of the good bits here as well. Uh, he started this morning by saying, if you ever look at house buying, uh, there is a phrase that crops up again and again and again, location, 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 uh, that it, people want to be in the right place. And when it comes to this letter to Pergamon, that seems to be something that the risen Jesus is saying. Uh, look at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you live. Now, each of the letters, the risen Jesus says something about them that he knows. In Ephesus, two weeks ago, verse 2, we heard this. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I'm sure he knew where they lived as well. But this was the thing he wanted to draw out. Next week, we'll look at the letter to Smyrna, verse 9. I know your afflictions. They were a severely persecuted church. But to Pergamon, he says, I know where you live. We could put verse 13 back, go back to that. Where Satan has his throne. Uh, Pergamon was on the top of a hill, very impressive. At the top was an impressive temple to Zeus and could be seen from miles away. And some people think it might have been referring to that. It almost looks like a throne, uh, but it probably wasn't that. Down at the bottom in the valley was the temple of Asclepius, an ancient god of healing. Uh, it was known as the lords of the ancient world, not the cricket ground, the place where people go uh, for healing. And the symbol was of a serpent. And some people wonder if that's what he was referring to. But it's most likely that what the risen Jesus was referring to was that Pergamon was the center of the Roman Empire for that reason, the imperial Caesar cult. Uh, Pergamon was the HQ. If Ephesus was the New York, uh, then Pergamon is the Washington DC, where, where the authority was. Uh, it was the home of the proconsul, who had as his badge a short, double-edged sword, symbolizing his authority over life and death. And in verse 12, if we go back to the first verse of our reading, Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. It would have been particularly relevant in Pergamon. Uh, in Revelation 1, we have this vision of Jesus with this sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, reminds us of the famous verse in Hebrews 4.12. If we can put Hebrews 4.12 up. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than double-edged sword, dividing even soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. 
And as we listen to God's word and submit to it, open to his spirit, we find him speaking, getting through to the uh, inner core of our being. Uh, Let's put up verse 13 again of our reading. So I'm making Martin work very hard tonight, going backwards and forwards. Uh, The proconsul had the right of life and death. And it seems that in this place, Christians had died, particularly Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Uh, these are the, uh, towards the end of the first century, probably around 90 AD. Domitian is the Caesar, the emperor. And he has demanded that throughout the Roman Empire, people bow the knee to him as Lord. They have to burn some incense uh, and bow to him as Lord, and then they're fine. Now, of course, Christians can't do that. Jesus is Lord. So Christians who refused to do that were persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. And Antipas obviously was singled out for particular persecution and death. Now, we live in a day that's not easy to be serious about our Christian faith. Our society has lots of values that come from the Christian faith, but our society is pretty negative about people who try to live with Jesus as Lord. There is a pressure on us, but it is nothing like the pressure that was faced by people who are under life and death sentences, as many of our brothers and sisters are around the world, and as they were uh, all those years ago. But Jesus knows where you live. He knows where we live in Leamington. He knows where you are on Warwick campus or wherever it is. He knows where your workplace is. He knows. He knows the pressures of that place. He knows what's wonderful and good about it. This world is made by God and much is good and wonderful. Leamington is a great place to be. My wife was at Warwick University uh, a little while ago, back in the 80s, should we leave it like that? Uh, and um, she came as a student to Warwick and it's a good place to come back to. So who knows, some of you might come back married to the vicar in years to come. Who, know, who knows? Uh, you never know what will happen. It's a great place to be. But it's a place where all the pressures of our world come into place as well. The university is a place where the ideas of our world are right at the forefront. And there is a huge pressure to conform to them and not to live out our Christian faith with Jesus as Lord. St. Paul in Romans 12 verse 2 put it like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing and perfect will. We need to get our thinking straight about what we're fine to go along with and where the line is drawn. And in Pergamon, they'd got this right. We'll put up verse 13 again, Martin, if that's right. We keep coming back to that. You remain true to my name. In every church, Jesus says, this is what's good. Every church apart from one where he couldn't find anything good. Uh, You remain true to my name. You haven't renounced your faith in me, not even in those terrible days when Antipas was put to faith. He knows there's a pressure. That's good. But then he says there's an issue, and we'll put up verses 14 and 15 of our letter. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we met these Nicolaitans in Ephesus a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Back in verse 6, back in chapter 2, verse 6 in Ephesus, uh, Jesus praised the Ephesians. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, There in Ephesus, they they were really good at testing out error and heresy. They stuck to the truth and they weren't having anything of it. Their issue was that they'd lost their love for the Lord and perhaps they were a bit harsh and cold in the way they preached their truth. 
their love for others may have been a little bit wobbly. Here in Pergamon, they're much more loving. They love the Lord, they're faithful to him, but it seems that that loving has become a bit over-tolerant to the point where they're accepting and embracing heresy that is anti-Christian. Back to verses 14 and 15. They're tolerating this among them, and the risen Jesus is not pleased. We are to welcome everybody, uh, old or young, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, whatever sexual orientation or anything else, all are welcome. But that doesn't mean that all practices are welcome. Uh, Whether it's greed or whether it's theft or whether it's sexual immorality, that is not welcome. We welcome people, but it doesn't mean we welcome everything that happens. We need to hold together this truth and love. And this is a hard balance. Jesus was full of grace and truth, uncompromising on the truth, but utterly gracious in how he expressed it. And the danger is some of us will be more uh, good on the truth and perhaps we're a bit harsh and we need to learn to do the truth in love. Some of us will be a bit more perhaps loving but maybe a little wishy-washy on the truth. And it's both and, not either or. So what are the essentials in what we have to hold on to? Well, clearly there is truth about Jesus himself. Antipas had been faithful to him. Uh, There are three utter essentials in the Christian faith. Who Jesus is, that he claims to be God in human form, that he died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again. Those are like the three legs of a tripod and if you've got those, the tripod is secure. Only two legs on a tripod and it's not so good. Uh, You need the, the three. If you're not sure about those things, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, come to Alpha, our Alpha course on the back of the notice sheet. Uh, It's on Tuesday evenings. We've just had the first introductory evening. It's fine to join us on week two. We'll feed you half past seven, teach you about the Christian faith, and you've got an opportunity to ask questions. If you're not sure about those three things, come and get them sorted. They are key. If you are clear on those things, we need to determine to hold on to them. It is not popular in our world of sort of that seems to believe that all religions are equally valid to believe that Jesus uniquely is God in human form. It's not popular in our world that tries to earn forgiveness uh, in whatever other religion it is to say you can't, but it's, we can be forgiven because of Jesus. It's not popular to claim that Jesus is risen and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee must bow to him. Uh, But in Pergamon, they were really good on that. They held fast to it. What they weren't so good at was this relational truth. These Nicolaitans, the the teaching of Balaam, they let that in. They were a bit over-tolerant of some of the things that people believed. Uh, So let me just try and explain this a bit. Uh, The teaching of Balaam, we meet Balaam and Balak back in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. They are on their way to the promised land and they have to go through various other nations. Uh, And as they go through Moab, the king of Moab is really, Balak, is a bit worried about them. He knows there's a prophet called Balaam who can bless people or curse and he sends to get him to pay money to him to curse the Israelites because he really doesn't want them to thrive. Balaam says he'll come, uh, but he can only speak what God gives him. So Balak says, well, I'll give you money, come and curse them. And Balaam looks at them and he sends God's blessing. He blesses them and Balak's not very impressed. Balaam is basically a good man. Balak's a bad king. He tries it three times and Balaam says, I cannot do anything other than God speaks. 
But then he says, but if you've really got it in for them, the way that their God would not be impressed is, why don't you get your Moabite women to invite these like men to one of your sacrifices, where there's quite a lot of alcohol and immorality, and they'll probably fall for sexual immorality, and then God won't be very impressed with them. And that's sure enough what happens. The Moabite women invited the Israelite men to their sacrifice. They got drunk. They indulged in sexual immorality. And the God of Israel is holy and he will judge. God is holy and not to be messed about with. And sexual immorality was what led to their downfall. Now that was 1300 BC. But the same issue of allowing people in to the church and letting them teach that it doesn't really matter this, uh, what you do with your body Uh, It's just what you believe in your heart. It's your spirit that matters, not your body. You'll be fine. That is a lie that God hates and wants to weed out of his church. And this is a live debate in the whole Church of England, indeed in the whole world. We live in a society rife with sexual immorality, as the early church did, the Greek world, the Roman world. And of course, these things come through the church and we have to debate them. And there are people in the Church of England, as every other church, who are arguing for letting go of biblical sexual morality. So this is an issue for us live as well today. Uh, What Balaam was to the Old Testament Israelites, the Nicolaitans were to uh, the first century Christians. You're free. Don't be so narrow-minded. Isn't your God a loving God? Don't be so intolerant. Who are you to judge someone else's lifestyle? Or... More insidiously, how will you ever reach out to people if you don't engage with them? And obviously these are half-truths, and Jesus says that behind these half-truths or half-lies lies Satan, the father of lies. It's the same tactic as you meet in the Garden of Eden, where God says you can eat all of these trees but not that one. And Satan comes and says, isn't God a spoil sport? Did he say you can't have any of that stuff? No, that's a lie. He said you could have all of it, but not that one. There are boundaries to our freedom. God is God, and we are not. And it's the same lie today. Isn't your God a spoil sport? I'm so glad Josh picked, uh, picked that song, Your Goodness, God, because that is ultimately true. God is the source of all goodness and joy and life, and we are made in his image. And the way to be truly, fully ourselves is to bow the knee to Jesus as our Lord. Uh, When I went up to university, what is now 1981, what's that, 38 years ago, that makes me very old, Um, I was wrestling with am I going to be a Christian or not. I'd grown up in a Christian home, I knew it was true, I'd spent time not living as a Christian and I was torn two ways and it was miserable and I realised that Jesus was true so I had to go his way but I was a bit reluctant about it, I just knew that that was the right thing. And as I had a fresh start as a student, I bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord, knowing it was the right thing to do. I was blown away by the joy that overwhelmed me. And as each year has gone on by, God has made me slowly a bit more into the person I'm meant to be. That was 38 years ago. I'm 56 now. In another 38 years, I might be a godly old boy. We're just on the way. I'm still a work in progress. If you've come up as a fresher to university... If you're not sure, the best thing you can do is bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. Uh, You may, of course, want to be miserable. Most of us like to be joyful. If you want to be miserable, then my top tip is be a half-hearted Christian. It's almost guaranteed. Sing your worship songs in church, then live the opposite during the week. You will be torn in two. It will be miserable. But you may want that, in which case that's fine. You, You are free to choose that if you want. But God is good. 
Satan is evil, but he tempts us with things that look good, but they're sort of poisoned fruit. Now, I don't know where you're most at danger, whether it's from the direct persecution that some of our Christian brothers and sisters face around the world, we'll think about next week, or whether it's from the more subtle, insidious sort of half-truths. Uh, I played a lot of cricket in my younger days. It's been a great year, for a great summer for cricket this, this country has had. Uh, I played in the day before we had helmets. So fast bowlers were scary. They're scary now, but they were really scary then. Uh, and I wasn't good enough to play at the level where fast bowlers were controlled. I faced fast bowlers who were uncontrolled, which meant it could come at any part of you. And it was dangerous. I didn't like the fast bowling. I liked it when the spinners came on. They bowl these little gentle things and my eyes lit up and I'd try and whack them over the boundary. And I would two or three times and then I'd be caught. I'd get out. Actually, I was scared of the fast bowling. So I was actually more effective against it. And I wound up being an opening batsman. Uh, it's often the innocuous spinners that get us out and we need to be careful of these Nicolaitan myths. Now John Dunnett this morning gave five Nicolaitan myths and I'm going to use his, these are five modern Nicolaitan myths it's the same error as Balaam had over 3,000 years ago as the Nicolaitans had 2,000 years ago, is still alive and well, the church still falls for it, when the church falls for it the Lord judges and it's not good for the church or the individual but we need to watch out for them. And as I do this, there is a danger that I'm going to paint too much of a broad brushstroke. Uh, if I'm treading on anyone's toes, please forgive me. Uh, you wrestle with the Lord and the Scriptures, and we'll talk this through, and I'm very happy to chat with anyone afterwards whom these, these things are particular issues. Here's the first modern Nicolaitan myth. Jesus taught that we should love one another. God is love. So how can we deny people who love each other the intimacy of a sexual relationship if they love one another? Christian morality has always taught that sex is God's gift in heterosexual marriage for a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. Not before, not outside, not after. That's his place. But our world says if two people love each other, then why, why shouldn't we? Who are we to deny them? It's a modern Nicolaitan popular view. Uh, when the gay marriage debate was there in Parliament, I went to see our MP and I urged him to vote against it, not because we don't want to be kind to folks who have, were homosexually oriented. Uh, they had all the legal rights already in civil partnerships, but because marriage is given by God as a man and a woman, and this is different. And we had a debate about it, and I asked the MP what at the time, not the current one, why will you vote for this? He said, well, if two people love each other, why shouldn't they get married? I said, so when three people marriage comes in, you will vote for that as well. He said, don't be ridiculous. I said, but you will. If three people who love each other want to get married, why shouldn't they? It's already happening in other countries. They're called thruples, and it will come here, sure enough. It's the same reasoning. Uh, when Jesus was asked about issues to do with marriage, he took people back to Genesis, how God made us in his image, male and female. It's male and female together that reflect God, not two men or two women. We need each other in this. Uh, marriage is given for family as well and raising children, not just about the people's love relationship. So it's a half-truth that if people love it, of course you want love within marriage. But it's not the only thing. There are boundaries to it. God is not only love, 
the same book of the Bible that says God is love, says God is light and he is holy and his standards matter. So we need to watch out. It's a, it's a Nicolaitan myth. Here's the second one. It's not who you're in relationship with that matters, it's the quality of relationship that matters. Uh, now the Bible definitely teaches that relationships need good quality. In Ephesians 5, husbands should love their wives and give themselves up for them. That was radical 2,000 years ago. It's still pretty hard for husbands today. Uh, wives are to respect their husbands in, re in response to a husband who's laying down their life for you. That's the way it works. The Bible also sets boundaries for the shape of relationship. They have to be quality love relationships, but there are boundaries. As I said earlier, the Bible's boundary for sexual intercourse is for a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. Now, when I was a curate and I used to do more youth work, I don't, uh, don't, I'm an old dinosaur now, so I don't get to do much youth work. It's lovely having you teenagers there. And I taught on this. I used to use the illustration of fire. The Proverbs in the Bible uses this illustration. Sex is like fire. It's very, very powerful. And in the right place, it's utterly wonderful. But in the wrong place, it's very dangerous. So we have an open fire in our living room. And when there's a fire there in the hearth, that is a wonderful thing. October half term is usually when we get that going again. But if there's a fire on the sofa or in the curtains, that's the wrong place and that's dangerous. Uh, now, I had a friend called Phil who was um, ordained with me and was a curate of his youth group. And he was trying to teach the same thing to his youth group. We used to compare notes. But he didn't quite explain it clearly. And he was explaining to his youth group that sex is like fire. It's wonderful in the grate and terrible on the sofa. And he wondered why they were <laughs> falling about laughing. But that was, you have to explain these things carefully. But laughter apart, there's a right place. But when sexual relationships get out of hand, they can be destructive and destroy. And God is good and wants the best for us. So we have to be careful about these half-truths. Here's a third Nicolaitan myth. We can't take what the Old Testament says as reliable anymore. We've moved on. So in Leviticus, there are some verses that talk about not lying a man with a man or a woman with a woman as a, um, as a man and wife should do. Or a man and an animal for that point, or a woman and an animal. Well, that's less of an issue today, I think. But it's all banned there in Leviticus. And people have said, well... Leviticus bans us from eating prawns or pig, and um, I've got a cotton and polyester shirt on, and that doesn't qualify either. Why are we still taking these verses? It's sometimes said to me, there's only seven verses in the Bible on homosexual sexual activity. Uh, why can't we move on? But actually, there is a whole sweep of morality taught in the Bible alongside various other legislation. There are ceremonial laws and there are religious laws and the Bible teaches us that they are fulfilled in Jesus. When he died on the cross, he paid the price for all of this and we are free ceremonially and religiously. But the moral law is intensified by Jesus. All the mora morality that's taught in the Old Testament, Jesus, far from dismissing it, he takes it deeper. So instead of not murdering, we're not allowed to hate anymore. Instead of not committing adultery, we're to repent of lust. It's intensified. And Jesus banned all porneia, that's the word we get pornography from, which includes a lot of heterosexual sin uh, outside of uh, heterosexual marriage and homosexual sexual activity. It's, that's all porneia. It's there in the big sweep of teaching of Scripture as well as the verses. 
So it's a half-truth that we've moved on from the Old Testament. Yes, the New Testament fulfills the Old, but the moral law is intensified. The modern-day Nicolaitans won't have that. Uh, The modern-day Nicolaitans, here's a fourth one. They say, well, that's all very well, but the Bible doesn't know anything of faithful, permanent, stable uh, homosexual relationships. Uh, In those days, it was all very different. We have a very different quality. Ours are much more today the equivalent of heterosexual marriage. Now, that is actually simply a lie. It's not true. You can, the academics who've researched all the Greek and Roman literature are very clear there was a wide range of heterosexual and homosexual relationships, uh, some of which uh, were very power-based, others of which were equivalent to marriage, including two Roman emperors who had the equivalent of a gay marriage. Uh, so it's actually just not true. It's people not looking at their research properly. And if that's an issue to you, I could point you to the, the academics who've shown very clearly that the New Testament world they lived in was very like our New Testament world in terms of what went on and was permitted. Here's a fifth one. We could do loads more, but we'll stop with five. Uh, if God has made you with homosexual desires, then they must be good and part of his design. So, of course, you must find expression for that. Now, God's made us as sexual beings and sexual desire is part of his creation what this does is take that we are made in God's image and ignore the fact that we are all fallen and sinful that means every part of us is spoilt includes our thinking includes our bodies it includes our sexual desire so how are we to say what's right and what's wrong we come back to the God who made us uh, and in Genesis it's very clear that we're all broken and all in need of God's healing. Uh, Our world says the way to be fulfilled is to have a romantic partner. There are lots of different love words in the New Testament. Uh, Filio and storge that talk about brotherly love and love for things. Eros is romantic love. And our world says has elevated Eros to godlike status. Unless you have a romantic partnership, you'll never be fulfilled. Actually, that's not the ultimate fulfillment. The Bible talks about agape love, the love of God, and it's in him we are fulfilled. And when we die, there is no marriage in heaven. There's no romantic relationships in heaven. We have the real thing. It's us and the Lord. Uh, So we have to be aware of the lie of the modern-day Lycolaitans who seem to think that a romantic, erotic love is the best thing for everybody in the right place that is a wonderful God-given gift. In the wrong place, it will not satisfy uh, your innermost needs for fulfillment. Now, I preached into all this about three years ago, a series of five sermons called Godly Relationships. And my reflection on that was I was too apologetic about it. Uh, We taught the truth of Scripture as well as we could, godly singleness, godly marriage. But I didn't talk enough about the goodness of God, that God is good and his way is best. Uh, I've just been reading a very remarkable book this week by a guy called David Bennett, who is Australian but is now uh, an academic in Oxford, called A War of Loves. This is a remarkable book. Um, Really, I want to see if I can get him up from Oxford to come and give a day here. Uh, He grew up with some church background, realised he was gay as a teenager, and wound up hating the church because he was sure the church were against the gay community. Uh, It's terrible if that is the case. The church has often communicated that to the gay community, and that is dreadful. Everybody is welcome. We love everybody. That doesn't mean that all behavior is celebrated in the church. 
Uh, he then had a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ who poured his love into his life. He was a gay activist. Um, this completely messed with his head, though his heart got in love with Jesus. And this war of loves describes the war of the love with Jesus and the gay community. And whereas he had been a gay activist hating the church, he wound up being part of the church and being hated by the gay community. And he was thinking, how can I be faithful to who I am and love Jesus? And he wrestles through this and tells his story. He now describes himself as a celibate gay Christian. Uh, but the, the thing that moved me to tears in reading this book is that this is one for everybody, heterosexual or homosexual, because he talks about submitting ourselves to Jesus supremely as Lord. And he talked about some remarkable encounters of the love of Jesus so flowing through him that that was the yes which helped him to say no to uh, a gay marriage partner and to focus on uh, healthy friendships, like there are covenant friendships in the Bible, like David and Jonathan, or like the Apostle John talks about being the disciple that Jesus loved, and really focusing on healthy friendships uh, but not following the world's demand for erotic love for everyone. This is an extraordinary book. I've got it up on the screen there, so you can make a note and get hold of it. It's very easy to read. The story is absorbing. It, from my point of view, I've had a number of folks, so I've had really good conversations with some of them are friends uh, who are gay. And try, for me to try and understand that is really important. And I haven't always been good at understanding or communicating love and acceptance. How we communicate the truth with love is difficult. Uh, but equally, it's, we haven't always understood the goodness of God and Jesus' design of our lives. And, and I just commend that book to you. Uh, we have a better story than the world around. Our story is that God has made us, that we are fallen, we're sinful, we've blown it. That Jesus has paid the price for our sin and we can be redeemed and restored to be the people he's made us to be. That is a better story than anything in the world around that says just be who you are. But what if who you are is crying out for help and there is no help available? It gives a hope that things that one day Jesus will come in and everything will be renewed. Whereas our world's hope is based on a sort of scientific progression that everything will get better. Is it getting better? Uh, modern medicine's a whole lot better. We praise God for that. Uh, but some of the, the ways that we put science to uh, in our world are terrible. Uh, we have a true hope. We are truly free when we're the people God has made us to be, not just when we're free to do what we like. Uh, I used to have, when the children were young, I used to have a little book called Tootles the Train. And I used to sometimes read this out. It's one of those books that if you pushed the button, it made noises. And each time we talked about Tootle the Train, I'd make the noise and put it near the microphone so everybody could hear it. Tootle the Train ran on tracks, and he saw the horses playing in the fields, and he loved the look of the horses and the sheep and the fields, and he was on the tracks, and he just wanted to be free and go off the tracks. And the great day came where the track was broken, and Tootles the Train jumped off the track and got into the field and was free. But of course he wasn't. He got stuck and bogged down. He was free when he was on the tracks, designed to run on the tracks. We are free when we run on God's tracks. There are boundaries to that freedom. I wear a wedding ring. That's like a rail. I am free when Juliet and I are faithful to each other. If we sleep around elsewhere, that, dev that would destroy our marriage. 
Freedom has to be within God's parameters. Free to be the people he's made us to be. It's the same, oh gosh, when we played Monopoly with the children. You know, you've all had Monopoly wars playing Monopoly, haven't you? The children say, we want to play Monopoly. I say, go for it. Do you want to play Dad? No, I don't want to play. Uh, We're only going to play if you're going to be the referee and the banker, because otherwise it goes wrong. There have to be rules. You play sport, there are boundaries. And God has wired us for freedom. And his truth matters. So how are we to navigate this? We believe the scriptures teach us the word of God. Jesus taught us that. So we, we need to get to know these, read them every day, and we submit our lives to them. We need to teach the scriptures with grace, not to bash people over the head as Bible bashers, but nor to wimp out of the truth. We need to honestly say, we are not going to compromise on this, but we absolutely love you, even if you disagree with us. Let's talk about it and try and find the right way through. Uh, Wonderful to pray for people. Have you ever experienced God's love? Because often God cuts through some of this by pouring his love experientially into our lives. Sometimes it comes through the mind first, sometimes it comes through the heart, as it were, first. Uh, Truth really matters. And the ideas we contend for that are part of the huge debate in the Church of England over this Uh, next few years particularly, the whole of society, they matter. They will set the course for many years to come. There was an archbishop in the Second World War, William Temple, a great, great archbishop. Amazingly, his dad had been archbishop before him. And when William Temple was a boy, a very bright boy, he loved reading philosophy and all the the great literature. And he said, Dad, why don't philosophers rule the world? They've got the best ideas. And his dad said, they do, silly, just 50 years after they're dead. (laughs) The ideas take a little while to filter through. We need to hold on to truth. We we are on the shoulders of giants who've contended for scriptural truth in this land. We must not let it go. Uh, The risen Jesus says to the church in Pergamon, let's just put up the last letter, the last verse of this, is it verse 17? Uh, Here we are. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The white stone seems to have been something that a jury gave to people when they were innocent or a judge to their innocent. Jesus declares our forgiveness with a name that he uh, knows uniquely for a relationship with you. The manna refers to the story in the Old Testament of God's daily provision for your needs. Whoever is faithful, there are these tremendous promises. But this battle runs through our society, it runs through our church, it runs through us. And we need to trust the Lord Jesus. He is good. Uh, I've spoken for quite long enough. Uh, So if the band would come back, and let me explain to those who are new here how we handle this and respond. Um, In a moment, I'll invite you to stand, and I'm going to pray a prayer that God helps us to process all of this, that he pours his Holy Spirit down and ministers to us wherever we are. Uh, and we'll have some stillness together, just to be still before the Lord, to allow its chance you can ask God questions, you can see what he wants to do. Uh, we'll then give people an opportunity to receive prayer. And if you would like to come forward as we're worshipping, we can pray with you as the worship goes on. If you'd like to be prayed for after the service, we can do that afterwards. Both are available. Uh, And then we'll turn to worship to the God who is good. 
that's the plan. And if anybody would like to have a word with me afterwards about that book, I can show you it. Uh, I'm still in the middle of sort of noting some things on it. Normally I give my copy away and buy another one, but I'm, I'm still onto that one. But I'll point it to anybody who'd like it afterwards. So would you like to stand and let's turn this to prayer. Lord, I've touched on things that go deeply into who we are, who you've made us to be. Some of us carry deep wounds from the past. Some of us are struggling with our own identity. Uh, many are struggling to trust you. Many of us are torn two ways between the world and between your way. We pray, dear Lord Jesus, that you would come now by your Holy Spirit. We pray you'd sort of help to drown out other voices that are going on and come and minister to us. Perhaps the band just start playing instruments.